I'm partway through a series. I took a break from that last time I spoke in response to the uh, terrorist attacks in Paris. So we're coming back to it and continuing this series called Investment and Return, in which we're looking at practical ways that we can invest in our relationship with God, invest in His kingdom in order to gain the return that God wants to give us. And we looked at the amazing harvest that we might reap if we sow to please God rather than pleasing ourselves. A life experiencing things like love and joy and peace instead of hatred and discord and destruction. We looked at the incredible fruitfulness of our lives which comes from abiding in the true vine. Uh, A real relationship with Jesus, living in close relationship with him, obeying his commands, leading to incredible impact for his kingdom. Last time we looked at flourishing like a tree growing by a stream in which um, and also, sorry, wait a minute. <laughs> Here we go. Let me start this. <laughs> we looked at flourishing like a tree growing by a stream, which comes from engaging with the Bible, living energized and resourced and growing in wisdom. And today we're going to look at another area of return on investment. We're going to talk about investing our money. Now, a few months ago, the BBC showed a mini-series on how British people spend their money. It was called Britain's Spending Secrets. And Anne Robinson spent some time with the very rich, with the very poor, and a bunch of people in between. And trying to find out really how we spend our money and what it says about us, indeed, whether money can make us really happy. And it gave an insight into what is normally a very private aspect of British life. Most people get very uncomfortable when talking about money. They don't like anybody to know how much they make or how much they spend or what they spend it on. But during this program, Anne said this. It's hard to think of another subject other than money that could reveal so much about who we really are. No wonder we squirm and wriggle and pretend talking money is vulgar. In fact, it exposes far too much Our upbringing, our competitiveness, our envy, our aspirations, what lies at the heart of us. Talk money, she says, and there's nowhere to hide. So money is one of the hardest subjects to talk about today. That's also true in church communities. But the Bible has a lot to say about money, and if we're willing to invest it as God intends us to, he promises that the return on that investment will be nothing short of amazing. Now, as an aside to anyone who may be here for the first time this evening, I'm aware the very first talk you're hearing is on a subject that most people in polite society never talk about. But my hope is that you'll find what I say tonight helpful, uh, interesting, feel completely free to take what you want of it and disregard anything that's not helpful to you. I just want to be completely clear, we're not after your money. The comedian and author George Carlin, who has a relatively low view of Christianity, evidently, he said this. Religion has actually convinced people that there's an invisible man living in the sky who watches everything we do, every minute of every day. And the invisible man has a special list of 10 things he doesn't want you to do. But he loves you. He loves you, and he needs money. He always needs money. He's all-powerful, all-perfect, all-knowing, and all-wise, somehow just can't handle money. And perhaps that's how some of you might see God in relation to money. Certainly a popular concept in mainstream culture and the media. But in contrast to that, I just hope to highlight some things tonight that the Bible says about money that may surprise you. 
The Bible talks about money a lot. There are over 2,000 references to money and possessions through the Bible. Aside of the subject of the kingdom of God, Jesus talked more about money than he did about any other subject. So I'd like us to look at a few verses from Jesus' teaching. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. You find it in Matthew chapter 6, where he's talking very clearly about this issue. So if you have a Bible, you might like to turn with me, Matthew chapter 6, beginning here at verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And what I want to do tonight is just ask and answer three very simple questions which spring naturally from the text. Jesus exhorts us to store up treasure. And the three questions are this, for whom, where, and why? So starting off with the first question, for whom? Now this is a very well-known passage for many, and actually it's easily misread. At first glance, you just may assume what it's saying. Uh, It could look like Jesus is saying, be selfless. You know, don't keep the money you have for yourself, give it to God. And it's true that we're to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. But let's just have a look at these two verses again. And note a very surprising use of two words which applies to storing up treasure. Do not, Jesus says, store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. Those two words there repeated twice. This is storing up treasure for yourselves. And Jesus is giving us an incentive here to store up treasure. He's saying, do it. Do it for yourselves. Jesus is actually appealing to the motive of what is best for me in the long term. And just to give it some context here, this passage comes in the middle of a couple of chapters where Jesus gives some very practical wisdom on how, about a whole load of things to do with living life and uh, how we should act how we should uh, act when we pray, behave when we pray, how we should fast. And in the preceding few verses in that chapter, he does that. And what I find interesting is that he uses the same primary or related motivation in all of those passages. Let's just have a look at that. Matthew 6, verse 3, when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing so that your giving might be in secret. Then your father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. Verse 6, when you pray, go into your room, close the door, pray to your Father who's unseen. Then your Father sees what's done in secret, will reward you. Jesus says in verse 17, when you fast, go without food, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it won't be obvious to others that you're fasting, but only to your Father who sees what is unseen. And your Father, who sees what's done in secret, will reward you. Jesus wants us to be rewarded. And he's saying that these things will ultimately be best for us. Far from God not being able to handle money, far from being a stingy God who is after our money, Jesus is saying, if you want to be rewarded, if you want a great return on your investment, live like this. Live like this is the most powerful teaching in the Bible, the Sermon on the Mount. Many years ago, a foreign element entered Christianity via the humanistic philosopher Immanuel Kant. He doesn't look like a very happy fella to me. This is a photograph of him there. And his thesis went this way. 
that if a person benefits from their activity, there's something inherently wrong with their activity. He said the highest motive possible for a human being is selfless, to be selfless. And you might say, well, that kind of figures, that sounds about right. Christians latched onto that, so millions of Christians are doing their very best to be selfless. And many of us have been taught about obedience with a motive like this. God, God has done a huge amount for you. You know, he became a man in the person of Jesus Christ, lived a life here, he died a death on your behalf, died for your sins so you could know him. Now, isn't it time that you did something for God? So often in our minds, doing something for God pulls away from what we think would be best for us. We're in this tug of war within ourselves. A bit like the inner turmoil when we might arrive here on a Sunday and we wander across to the other side of the room there and there's all this baskets and stuff. There's, there's melon, sliced melon, maybe and there's freshly baked jam donuts. We stopped the jam for a while because it was wrecking the carpet, but there was a public outcry from many of you, so we've introduced the jam again. Freshly baked donuts, a little bit less jam, I think, than the preceding ones. But anyway, this turmoil, which do I have? Shall I have that? Shall I have that? A slice of melon, that's going to be good for me. The other one just tastes so good. <laughs> but the idea that we should be motivated by shoulds and oughts is not consistent with the overall teaching of the Bible. The message of Jesus is intended to be good news for us. It is our Father's heart to do us good. It is his heart to bless us and to give us real uh, returns for our investment. The Bible clearly teaches this. Follow Jesus Walk in his steps, and it will turn out better for you if you do. If you missed Simon Gillibo, who spoke last Sunday, it's worth going on, as I missed last Sunday, and I went on the uh, website and watched him. Phenomenal talk. I'd encourage you to see it. And in that talk, he made the same point when he said this. It makes sense, doesn't it? If God knows what's best for us, if he loves us, if you're going to walk in disobedience, things are going to go badly. If you're going to walk in obedience things will go better. Invest in the things that he tells you to invest in, and he loves to bless you with wonderful returns. It's in our long-term interest to obey Jesus' teaching in the area of money as it is in every area that he taught on. So it might at first glance seem selfish to do something because we gain from it, but it's no accident that Jesus talks about doing what is best for us in this passage and elsewhere as a legitimate motivation. He wants to reward us. So the principle of storing up treasure for ourselves is not wrong. Jesus taught us to do that. So the key question is, where? Jesus exhorts us to store up treasures, where? Well, let's look again at the text here. It says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust don't destroy, where thieves don't break in and steal. And in this passage here, Jesus is, advised, is advising basically where to store up our treasure and gives us these two options. You can store it up on earth, or you can store it up in heaven. So what does storing up treasure on earth look like? Well, the term treasure is an inclusive term. It includes more than money. It certainly includes it. But money and what it can buy is the most obvious application of that word, but it goes beyond that. So what's the problem with storing up treasures on earth? Well, he tells us there in verse 19, don't stop for your, store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal. At the time that Jesus lived, 
They hadn't invented mothballs yet. So, you know, the moths would come in, they would eat their clothing. I don't know what happened to mothballs. It's like something happened when I was young. We had everything smelt that way in the wardrobe. And now someone needs to email me and tell me what happened because our moths are not eating the clothes anymore, are they? But anyway, there were no mothballs back then. So moths are coming there, eating their clothes. Things were made of iron. They hadn't invented stainless steel or forms of steel yet. And so basically the iron, everything was going rusty. They had no five-levered door locks on their houses. So people would come along and nickel their stuff while they were out. So basically it's, everything's you know, very like, you know, uh, hard to keep hold of. It's going to deteriorate or be nicked. Everything we have is decaying. I hate to break the news to you, but as you sit here in your chair, the soles are slowly coming apart from the uppers of your shoes. If you drove here tonight, your car parked in the car park in inclement weather is rusting, slowly. While you're sitting here and your car is rusting, your fridge motor is wearing out at home. The paint is peeling off your window frames. If you're anywhere near my age, you know it's true that your body is also deteriorating. So everything is basically decaying. Everything can be stolen, stolen, and everything here is temporary. John D. Rockefeller is widely held to have been the wealthiest person in history. In 1916, he became the first person to ever reach a nominal personal fortune of a billion dollars. And at the time of his death in 1937, his personal fortune was worth, in today's terms, it's estimated about $340 billion. Either the richest man who's ever lived or the second. There was a king back in the 14th century who may have had marginally more. But after he died, the big thing in the press at the time was, well, how much did he leave? And so somebody asked that question, I think maybe in, a, in an interview to his accountant, how much did he leave? And his accountant reportedly said, he left all of it. He left all of it. There's an old saying that shrouds have no pockets. A shroud is something you wrap a dead body in when you bury them. You can't take anything material with you when you die. Jesus is recorded as telling a little parable in Luke chapter 12. I'm just going to quickly read you. He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will stir, store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with those who store up things for themselves, but are not rich towards God. Those who store up treasure here on earth as opposed to storing it up in heaven. So what's the alternative? What are treasures in heaven? How do we store them there? My friend Rich Nathan said this. Treasure in heaven is anything that you will keep forever. Whatever we do for Jesus, the poor we help in his name, the people we are kind to in his name, the kids we teach, the use of our money, for the things of God. These are things that are treasures in heaven and we send them on ahead of us. 
Now, the Bible does paint some word pictures of what heaven will be like, which we don't have time to look at today. We do know that it won't be sitting around on clouds playing harps, you know? There'll be a whole lot more creative and fun and fulfilling stuff going on. But the Bible is clear that the experience of heaven won't be the same for everyone. Some people will get into heaven by as though one escaping through the flames. I think it's 2 Corinthians talks about that. You know, by the skin of their teeth, they got in, they're saved because of the blood of Christ, but they didn't really do much with their life. They didn't really invest much. And so they're in, and they'll enjoy eternity, fine. But there are others who will be rewarded with well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's happiness, and, and here's basically the reward that you've amassed uh, for yourself that God wants to give us back. There's a great little book written by a guy called Randy Alcorn, He's a man who lives what he writes. And so if you were to buy this, we've got them at the um, bookstall. Fasten your seatbelt before you open the first page because he gives, I think, 90, 95% of his money away but lives a very exciting and dynamic life. And he says in his book here, Jesus takes that profound truth, you can't take it with you, and adds a stunning qualification. By telling us to store up treasures for ourselves in heaven, he gives us the breathtaking corollary, which I call the treasure principle. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. It's that simple. And if that doesn't take your breath away, you're not understanding it. Anything we try to hang on to here will be lost. Anything we put into God's hands will be ours for eternity. So if we give, he says, instead of keep, if we invest in the eternal instead of the temporal, we store up treasures in heaven that will never stop paying dividends. Whatever treasures we store up on earth will be left behind when we leave. Whatever treasures we store up in heaven will be waiting for us when we arrive. Randy uses the analogy of the dot and the line, and he describes it this way. Our lives have two phases. First of all, the dot, and the dot represents our life here on earth. It begins, it ends, it's very brief, but from that dot extends a line that goes on forever. And that line represents eternity, which Christians, followers of Jesus, will spend with him for eternity. Now, right now, we're living in the dot. But what are we living for? The short-sighted person, consumed just by the cares of this world, lives for the dot. They don't see beyond that. The person with perspective, with eternal perspective, lives for the line. And in this passage, Jesus is essentially saying, live for the line, not the dot. An example from Scripture of someone who lived for the line and not the dot was Moses. His choice to invest is recorded in Hebrews eleven twenty-six, And this is what it says. By faith, Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Now, this is such a profound point that if we truly grasp it, it will change our eternal experience. It will change our eternal perspective. And so I thought it was worth us watching this very short video where Randy explains it himself really well. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Why is he telling them don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth? Because they're not going to last. It's not simply that it's the wrong thing to do. 
It's the stupid thing to do. But Jesus says, turn it around. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Then if you know me, you're going to heaven. Then every day of your life, if your treasures are in heaven, you're getting closer to your treasures instead of moving away from your treasures. He who spends his life moving away from his treasures has reason to despair. He who spends his life moving toward his treasures has reason to rejoice. This life is just a dot. And from that dot extends a line. And that line is going to go out forever. We all live in the dot. But if we're smart, we're not going to live for the dot. We're going to live for the line with the people of God. God who will live forever. People who will live forever. His word which will live forever. So live your life now while you're in the dot in light of the line, investing in the line, what's going to matter after you die? It's profound. If you get nothing else from tonight, if you go away, that could change your life, that perspective. Let me put it another way. Imagine that our country announces, as a number of countries have before, that it's re-denominating its currency due to incredibly high inflation. So for a time, they will swap over your old money for the new currency, but after a point, your old currency will hold no longer any value. It'll be worthless. So wisdom would suggest, convert the cash you have that's knocking around the house, get it together, and convert it to something that's going to survive beyond this change of currency. And so in the same way, Jesus is advising us to convert our earthly currency into heavenly currency. Convert it to something that's going to survive longer than the dot. And we do this by giving to God. We do this by investing in his kingdom, storing up treasure where it's going to last. So building on what we've seen already, why should we store up treasure in heaven? Why? Well, Jesus teaches that if we invest in his kingdom, we will have a guaranteed return now and into eternity. And while the major incentive of our investment may be that we will be rewarded multiple times over in the life to come, it's also true that we can expect to return here and now. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. He said give and it'll be given to you. And investing in God's kingdom provides so many blessings. I haven't got time to go into many of them today. Just let me briefly mention a few, a handful, some fringe benefits of giving in this life. First of all, there's an increased freedom from the grip of money. The more things that we own, the greater their mass, the more their gravitational pull. And the more they tend to grip us, the more they even tend to own us. And giving breaks that bond. It sets us free from the hold of our possessions over us. They, they are servants to us. We can use them, but we don't serve them. It gives us increased financial security. It's kind of counterintuitive, but you think, well, no, I need to keep, keep everything I have, amass it for myself, then I'll be financially secure. God says, no, read the Bible. It's the other way around. If you want to trust me with a portion of your income, I will look after you, provide for you, according, God says, to his glorious riches. We don't have to worry. There's joy also which comes as a byproduct as we become invested in what we give to. So when we give to the kingdom, we get to play a part in kingdom work, in our local church, around the world, wherever we have invested. 
and our hearts grow bigger and bigger, more full of joy as we see how our gifts are impacting people, impacting the world for Christ. Debbie and I have for many decades given at least 10% of our gross income to the church. And on top of that, during seasons like building expansions, we've given far more than that. Part of the joy of being able to do that has been that we've seen the impact of some of the money that we have given. And many of you will relate to what I'm saying because you've given as we have. And so every time we hear a baptism testimony, we know that we personally have contributed to that person's life being changed in this life and into eternity. Every time we listen to stories of people's lives being blessed through the arches next door, every time we see this and the other buildings on this site being used for kingdom activity, every time we hear exciting news, we've got seven or eight churches that we planted out of here and we see on Facebook, Twitter, you know, some amazing event and people getting baptized and all sorts of things going off. We know, well, that happened because of what we gave here. Every time we consider what it we like to meet the Lord on that great day, joined by thousands who have come to know him through the life of this church, we know we played a part in joining with many of you and joining with God to make that possible. Another byproduct is increased meaning in life. There was a guy called Ray Berryman, CEO of a large company, who says he and his wife give at least half of their income to God's work each year. And he says this, my joy in giving comes from serving God in a way that I know he's called me to. It's exciting to know we're part of evangelizing, discipling, helping, and feeding the needy. It just feels wonderful and fulfilling. There's an increased enduring happiness in life. You know, with Christmas now only being 26 sleeps away, our mind turns, mine does, to Scrooge, the Christmas carol, and Scrooge there, who was miserable. That word miserable comes from the root word miser, miserable, because of his holding on to everything that he had. And he discovered the happiness which came from sharing his wealth. Hudson Taylor, the great 19th century missionary to China, said this, the less I spent on myself and the more I gave to others, the fuller of happiness and blessing did my soul become. And last little byproduct, increased intimacy with God. Mark, who's a lawyer who gives about half of his income away each year, he said this, my pursuit of money drove me away from God. But since I've been giving it to him, Everything's changed. In fact, giving has brought me closer to God than anything else. In the film Chariots of Fire, runner Eric Little said this, I believe God made me for a purpose, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. And those who give generously know the truth, that when I give, I feel his pleasure. And so if Jesus wants to bless us with returns and our investment, why is what we do with our money so important to him? Well, let's just look at the last verse there, verse uh, 21 of Matthew chapter 6. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our treasures, our money, our possessions, and our hearts are closely intertwined. They're tied together. I don't know whether you notice in the, the Anne Robinson quote earlier, she makes the same point. She said this, it's hard to think of another subject other than money that could reveal so much about who we really are. It exposes what lies at the heart of us. The heart 
is the control center of our being. It's where we make our decisions. It's how we think about life. It's what we daydream about. It all comes from the heart. And we tend to think, as we look at the heart and money, that if someone's heart is captured, their money follows. And that is indeed sometimes the case. A guy falls for a girl. Before you know it, there's purchases of jewelry, there's eating in restaurants that he couldn't afford to do when he was alone, but now he can because there's two of them, because his money follows his heart. The priority goes towards her. So it certainly happens that way that our treasure can follow our heart. But Jesus is telling us something different and very powerful here. Whilst it's true that our treasure will go where our heart is, it's also true that our heart follows our treasure. Decide where you want your heart to be and then your treasure will get right. He says, change your treasure distribution and watch what happens to your heart. This is a universal law. It's just like sowing and reaping is. If you want to know where your heart is, Jesus says, you'll be able to tell by checking your bank statement, your credit card statement, what you do with your money. If you wonder whether it's true that our hearts follow our treasure, let me suggest that you just gather whatever you can together and spend it all investing it in shares in a particular company. Let's just take, it could be Microsoft, it could be Apple. So I'm not biased, you can choose which one. Get the money together, buy as many shares as you can afford in one. And then see if you don't find that your allegiance to that company grows. You'll find that you become more interested in how the company's doing. You'll be keen to see the latest product that it brings to market. You'll find yourself willing it to expand, to be fruitful, to be successful. You'll be delighted when you hear stories of it doing well. You see, you don't have to make a decision to be focused on that company's success. It's the natural consequence of the fact that you've invested your money there. Same, Jesus says, with the kingdom of God. God knows how the heart works. You give, your heart follows. Don't wait for your heart to change. Put your treasure where you want your heart to be. If you want your heart to be invested in the kingdom of God, invest your treasure in the kingdom. If you're finding yourself wishing you felt more connected to God, invest financially in your relationship with him. If you find yourself wishing you were more connected to God's church and all that it does, invest in its work. And where your treasure is, your heart will follow. If we intentionally invest more money into God's kingdom, our hearts will become more invested in God's kingdom. See, God doesn't really care about our money. He cares about our hearts. God is not short of money. The Bible tells us he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's not that bothered about the money. He can fund the church through whatever way he's chosen to do it through us because he knows the intertwined connection between our money and our hearts. He wants our hearts. And so, just another little quote here from Randy Alcorn from his book. God wants your heart. He isn't looking just for donors for his kingdom, those who stand outside the cause and dispassionately consider acts of philanthropy. He's looking for disciples immersed in the causes they give to. He wants people so filled with a vision for eternity that they wouldn't dream of not investing their money, time, and prayers where they will matter most. Now, if you want to know where our hearts are, there's a, a fairly simple but slightly profound question that we could ask ourselves which really reveals, like, where is my heart? And this is it. Where do I find it most easy to invest or spend money? 
to spend money without really having to think twice. Just say, yep, we need that, we need to get it. It might be things like your house, improving your house, your car, building your business. It might be your golf club membership, it might be your family, it might be your holidays, it might be another handbag. You just fill in the blank for you personally, what is it? What, what do you find it just easy to do without even hardly thinking about it? That's the sort of thing I would invest in. When you write a large check or make a large payment, what do you find it most easy to spend it on? Well, that will tell you something about where your heart is. Now, as I prepared today's talk, I asked this question of Debbie and myself, and I was quite struck by the answer. And just as I shared my own experience in the last couple of talks as we looked at devotional life, prayer, relationship with Jesus, as we looked at study of the Bible, I felt it was appropriate just to share my experience as it relates to this point, and hopefully it'll be helpful to you. Now, we are by no means alone in answering the question as we did. Many of you here would answer it very similarly. But we, Debbie and I, have always been very careful with money. We like nice things but we really like to get a bargain. We do not want to ever pay full price for anything. We like to get value for money. We like to buy our clothes in sales. We like to find things on eBay or bits of furniture in need of restoration from antiques fairs and, and so on. So just to take an issue like our summer holiday, I'm very grateful to my wife, Debbie, for being the one who finds sources and sorts out the summer holiday because it takes so long. It takes hours and hours over many days researching. We have some basic criteria. We want a week in the sun in a nice hotel by the beach. So that's the criteria, and we don't want to pay very much for it. We want to be the person in the hotel who has paid less than every other guest present. So she goes online, she compares deals, and this one's 30 pounds cheaper than this one, and then she makes a phone call, and then she, then she reads all the things on TripAdvisor about just to make sure everyone who ever ate in that, hosp that hotel's restaurant really loved every meal, you know, and the cleanliness in the bathrooms. And then when she arrives at it, she then books it, and we have achieved that goal, usually of being the person who paid the least to get into the nicest place. But when it comes to giving to God and his work and needs, the decisions are actually generally quite different to that. They're actually very quick and easy. So as well as giving a tenth of our income to the church and giving monthly to building expansion projects through nearly every month of every year for the past 16 years, so on top of that, when something comes up, uh, like the recent special offering for the refugee crisis came up and a week's notice we as a church gave to that, we made the decision on how much to give to that between us in a few seconds. It was, uh, and as it happens, I hadn't realized it, but it was almost pound for pound exactly what we had just spent on our summer holiday for the two of us to go to Mallorca. But it was an easy decision. It was basically, how much do you think we should give, darling? Yeah, that much? Okay, that's fine. Payment made. And uh, I know that that's going to be the way that many of you would approach giving, investing in God's kingdom. And I tell you that simply to communicate that when spending money if you find it easier to spend it on material things or on experiences for yourself than you do on God's kingdom, you might just want to consider where your heart is. And if it's somewhere other than in God's pocket, to consider investing more there because your money will lead your heart deeper into God. So as we come into land now, let's say you, you want to invest more than maybe you do currently in God's work. Well, how much should you give? 
Well, let me just put it like this. Imagine that a financial advisor is asked, well, how much do I need to save, invest for my retirement? The financial advisor replies, well, how much do you want to have for your retirement? Your return's going to be in direct proportion to uh, your investment. So what would Jesus say if we asked him, well, how much should we invest in your kingdom? He might say, well, how much treasure in heaven do you want? You know, your return is going to be in direct proportion to your investment. And it's entirely our choice. What we do with our money now will determine what heaven will be like for us later. It's not the only determinant, but it is a key one. God is wanting to reward us. He's wanting to bless us, and he's left it up to us. Now, if you already give, I would encourage you just to look. It's a good thing annually just to review your giving you know, in relation to how much you have coming in. Maybe should you adjust the percentage? Uh, you, know, you might want to pray about that. Um, somebody here recently said to me that one of the most important things everyone should have is a round to it. And I was trying to picture what one of those would look like. I'd never heard of one, and I didn't really understand what he meant initially. But then he explained. He said, when it comes to giving, everyone needs to get a round to it. One of the reasons, you know, many people don't get their giving sorted out you know, with the regular standing orders to the church or whatever, is not because they're resistant to God and want to hold on to it all and they don't want to be generous for the kingdom and so on. It's simply because they don't get around to it. And so these forms are on a seat near you and they're not there to cajole you into starting a standing order to the church or for revising what you might already be giving. But they're there because many of you today know that you want to make a change. And having one of those forms helps you. You can take that away with you. You don't have to Go to the connector, remember to pick one up, and then forget it for, and so on. So um, you may want to do that. And uh, if you're not yet giving, I really would encourage you to start. And if you think, well, oh my goodness, the percentages you've talked about tonight, those are not typical. But you know, like we talked about 10% as being a great guideline. That's a lot for me. I could only give them 1%. Well, okay, give 1% if that's what you would like to start. And these are steps towards, as God will lead you, you will find that you're eventually giving a multiple of that, but just start small. There are boxes by the door. If you wanted to fill it in before you leave, most of you won't want to do that. You can take them home. There's a free post envelope on the forms, certainly the new edition of the forms, and uh, also the bank details, the church bank details. The best option, quite honestly, is to go on your own bank online, set up a standing order there. And if you do that, if you could just email the finance department, it's giving at trentvineyard.org, just to let them know I've just set up a standing order for this amount that will be really, really helpful, uh, helpful for them. You can also, if you want to make a one-off gift, you can do that via our website. I think you can also set up a regular one uh, on there as well. So I'd encourage you to just take this opportunity to review your giving, look at what you have coming in, and decide what amount you want to give. And do it this week if possible, because if that form, you take it home, it gets buried under a pile of papers, or that good intention gets buried under a pile of other things on your to-do list, you may never get one of those special things that my friend talked about. You may never get around to it, and everybody needs one of those. So, Now, of course, giving to the church is only one expression of giving to the kingdom, uh, and um, on top of your regular financial, financial commitment to the church, let's keep looking for ways where we can give to others when we come across need. You know, I get to hear wonderful stories about, you know, on the discipleship year, people with almost no money giving to other people with even less money. People who have money giving to those who have less. There are needs around the church and the body of Christ has been created uh, as one part's hurting, the other part lifts them up. 
And so I'd love to see money flowing all over the church and way beyond the church into our neighborhoods and, and uh, friends. And for us to be known, the people of God to be known, as people who reflect God, his nature, he's the most generous person in the universe, and he would love it if the church in the Western world, which is not particularly known for generosity, would express his nature and be known as actually the most generous people on the face of the earth.